hppodcraft.com. Okay, now we are rolling. Of the events which took place at the Norton Mine on October 18th and 19th, 1894, I have no desire to speak. A sense of duty to science is all that impels me to recall in the last years of my life scenes and happenings fraught with a terror doubly acute because I cannot wholly define it. But I believe that before I die, I should tell what I know of the, shall I say, transition of Juan Romero. Is this too hammy? No, not at all. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, Pete Lambert, who is, uh, he's an editor, film editor. Yeah, well, he's, a, he's got a beautiful voice, but that's what he does. That's what he does a, professionally, a, professionally, and he's working on the, the Twilight sequel, New Moon, right now. As, well, not as we speak. Wow. Uh, I hear that, that film's got a lot of teenagers very excited in their dirty parts. Oh, yes. Yes, it does. Their necks. Yeah. They have dirty necks. Terrible joke. <laughs> it, it was. It really was. I'm a little ashamed of you. I'm ashamed of you, Chad Pfeiffer. Oh, yeah. that's So I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And this is the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. We switched it up a little bit. I know. Actually. Whoa. Yeah. We keep it fresh here. Yeah, that's the way we do it. So today we're talking about... Uh... We're talking about the transubstantiation of Wonton de Mero. <laughs> I thought it was the transfiction of Ray Romano. <laughs> no, no, I believe it is the transportation <laughs> of George of Romero. Juan Valdez. <laughs> I think I said that last week, didn't I? I said Juan Valdez last week. I don't know. It is actually the transition of Juan Romero, yes. which the intro paragraph that we just heard yes. tells us. Um, we've got a character, a guy, he's got a past. A very sordid past. One he will not speak of. That's right. And he's coming to the States, the United States, the western part, the great open west. Yes, the looking, south, uh, southwest. The southwest, looking for anonymity. Uh, he, he was apparently some kind of soldier, a British soldier, we assume, uh, been stationed in India, where he spent more time with as he says, the white-bearded native teachers than officers. Yes. Uh, he really dug Eastern lore, but what, something happened out there. We don't know. He doesn't say. He doesn't say. He won't but tell it, us. It, it drove him here to the U.S. under an assumed name. Uh, yeah, and we don't even know his assumed name. He doesn't even tell us that. He doesn't tell us anything. We do know that it's 1894. Well, it tells us something. Yes. Uh, he's working as a laborer in the Norton Mine, which was discovered by Prospector and turned out to be full of gold. Lots of gold. Uh, and, and there's some caverns in there, which the superintendent of the mine speculates were made by water, carved out by water, and that soon they'll open up the rest of them. Yes, yes, yes. So um, he gets a job down in these mines, mm -hmm. and he's uh, and then that's where he meets this fella. This Juan Romero. Juan Romero. Mm -hmm. And and uh, Juan is, uh, you know, he's Hispanic, but there's something different about him. He's not, right. doesn't look like the, the typical Hispanic guy. That's right. He doesn't look like a typical Mexican laborer. What no. he says is, uh, he at first attracted attention only because of his features, which, though plainly of the Red Indian type, were yet remarkable for their light color and refined conformation, being vastly unlike those of the average greaser or piute of the locality. <laughs> yeah. Greaser. Yeah, I, I, again, just folks, I know some of you maybe haven't read a lot of Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. Not all of it is so ra racially uh, and egotistically <laughs> slanted. I know well, all the things that we've read so far kind of pretty much have been. Uh, maybe The Tomb doesn't really touch on any of that kind of stuff. 
But later on, his stories, I don't know why it's so prevalent in all of his early work. I don't know. I like that he used the word greaser. In my head, I pretended that he meant that gang from... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, no, no. I pictured guys with pompadours <laughs> yeah, and leather exactly. jackets and rolled up jeans. From the outsiders, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Piute is an Indian tribe that's, yes. that's native to the American West. That's what he means by that. And uh, he goes on to say that Romero differed a lot from the Mexicans, but didn't look Caucasian. It's not that he had white blood mixed in. It was more as if he were from an ancient Aztec lineage. Yes. And and there's actually a little goofiness with how Juan came into being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So supposedly um, they found him as a child by a large crevasse that like opened up in, uh, and there's two skeletons that were presumed to be his parents. Two skeletons, newly picked by vultures, and presumably forming the sole remains of his parents. No one recalled their identity, and they were soon forgotten by the many. Indeed, the crumbling of the adobe hut and the closing of the rock fissure by a subsequent avalanche had helped to efface even the scene from recollection. Reared by a Mexican cattle thief who had given him his name, Juan differed little from his fellows. <laughs> cattle thief. But, yeah, he can be as snooty as he wants, but it's really badass to have a Mexican cattle thief as your dad. Yeah, I, I wish uh, my dad was a Mexican cattle thief. Well, I think everybody does, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I, mean it, I love my dad, don't get yeah, me wrong. He's sure. a great guy, but he would be a lot cooler if he was a Mexican cattle thief. There's pretty much no profession that a guy could have that wouldn't be trumped by Mexican cattle. Yeah. It's know, it's like a it's like a um a royal flush. <laughs> you know? No. Okay. Um uh, the, the protagonist does say that Romero's into him. Well not him so much, but his ring. Right. Yeah, because he's got this ring and and Juan keeps uh, getting fixated on it and he keeps looking mm-hmm. at his ring. And this ring he picked up when he was in India. And it's uh, some kind of Hindu uh mystical significance yeah he spells hindu h-i-n-d-o-o yeah i don't i don't know if that's just an antiquated spelling or uh if you know i'm not sure either if somebody listening does know if that has a different uh significance than your hindu with a u let us know i i think maybe that's yeah and a lot of the notes i've read of lovecraft's you know like when he does you know how he spells eskimo it's Mm. just an antiquated spelling right right right. it, it you know changes around so I, i'm guessing that that's what it is but if anybody out there knows please let us well let romero us uh juan's really into that ring he really likes it yeah. that mystical ring and, and it, soon he becomes almost like our protagonist's servant uh so one day the miners when juan and, uh, and our protagonist aren't working they lay a huge charge underground in the mines mm-hmm. where they believe there's only solid rock uh and they're gonna blow that up and hopefully find a couple more caverns to get some gold and kaboom yeah guess what there is not just a little hole that gets blown, a bottomless abyss. Right. The explosion just rocks the whole area. It shatters. It makes the mountain kind of shake. Yeah, and dudes get knocked off their feet. Windows shatter. The yeah. lake heaves up. Yeah. And, and down there in the mines, there's an abyss that's enormous. Yeah. They, they start trying to test to see how far down it goes, and they don't have enough rope. They find no bottom. No. And it's really freaking the workers out. Yeah. Superintendent, I think he says, you know, hey, folks, let's just... You know, block off that area. We'll figure out what to do about it. Yeah. You know, because he's a little confused. You know, bottomless holes, not too common. Yeah, it reminded me of um, a story that H.P. Lovecraft wrote for Harry Houdini that he oh, goes right. wrote. Yeah, the, uh, Under the Pharaohs, right? Uh, underneath the Pharaohs. <laughs> um, took us. I, it's called Imprisoned with the Pharaohs, or that's how I read it, but I think it has another title. Yeah, which uh, is uh, Under uh, the Pyramids. Under the Pyramids, yeah. Uh, but in that, uh, Houdini gets lowered into a pyramid. And when, I think he wakes up as he's being lowered down. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they drop... Oh, we finally hits the ground, and then they drop the rope on him, and it keeps falling and falling and falling and falling and falling. And, falling and, falling and, falling. and it's just... The, the idea that, you know, these things are bottomless, or you're so far down in the so earth, far down, it's yeah. just... It's horrifying. So, uh, 
Mm-hmm. They leave it be for the time. And, and then that night... At two in the morning, a lone coyote on the mountain began to howl dismally. From somewhere within the works, a dog barked an answer, either to the coyote or to something else. A storm was gathering around the peaks of the range, and weirdly shaped clouds scudded horribly across the blurred patch of celestial light which marked a gibbous moon's attempts to shine through many layers of cirrostratus vapors. Oh my god, those sound effects are amazing, Chris. Yeah. That was really good. Thank you. I'm, uh, I've studied under Michael Winslow. Of Police Academy fame? Yes, yes, absolutely. Wow. Well, I... that's uh, Wait, audience, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> that night, they hear all the, the, the coyote howling and the, the dog, and then something else kind of starts happening mm-hmm. below the earth. And from the bunk above, uh, Juan Romero starts shouting in Spanish. Madre Dios! <laughs> El sonido. El sonido. Ogivid. I don't know. I don't, what is that? That doesn't even look like Spanish to me. Senor, uh, that sound. El coyote. El perro. El viento. I could listen to it all night. Man. <laughs> that throb down in the ground. He says. That's what Romero says. And, and then he's, he's uh, flipping out. Yeah. And and now our protagonist hears it. Heard and shivered. And without knowing why, deep, deep below me was a sound, a rhythm, just as the peon had said, which, though exceedingly faint, yet dominated even the dog, the coyote, and the increasing tempest. To seek to describe it was useless, for it was such that no description is possible. Perhaps it was like the pulsing of the engines far down in a great liner, as sensed from the deck, yet it was not so mechanical not so devoid of the element of the life and consciousness. I really like that uh, description of the engines and the boat. That It's that kind of a... It's that kind of thing, but it's organic. Yeah. It's like some big thing is causing yeah, a big living thing. Rolling by down Ooh. there. Yeah. So uh, they both jump out of their bunk beds. Yes. Uh, and they listen. Uh, and in every flash of lightning, Romero's looking down at that ring that our protagonist Yeah, has. and it seems to glint. It seems, whenever the yeah. lightning hits, it looks like it, it's you know, glinting extraordinarily. And none of the other folks, none of the other miners are around at the time. No. Everybody's off supposedly drinking. That's right. what he guesses. Yeah, they're all, they're all at the bar drinking up. And so uh, Juan and our, and our guy, they, uh, they start descending into the mine. Yeah. As we descended the shaft, the sound beneath grew definitely composite. It struck me as horribly like a sort of oriental ceremony with beatings of drums and chanting many voices. So it be it, it becomes a more tangible thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. almost like, like a, some kind of rite or ritual. Is right. Going mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's a maybe uh, somebody's you know calling something forth. I don't know. Yeah, like yeah, you know. something could be coming from below, or exactly. they've stumbled onto some kind of subterranean civilization or something, and they can see down there because of his ring. His ring is is glowing. His his magic Hindu ring, and uh, well, you know, they can see down there. But then uh, Juan gets pretty excited, and he just starts like you know, booking down there, running ahead of him. And so he's like, whoa, whoa, no, you know, hey, Juan, where's he, where's he running off to? And of course, they're running off, to, he's running off to the hole. The climax of that awful night was composite, but fairly brief, beginning just as I reached the final cavern of the journey. Out of the darkness, immediately ahead, burst a final shriek from the Mexican, which was joined by such a chorus of uncouth sound as I could never hear again and survive. In that moment, it seemed as if all the hidden terrors and monstrosities of Earth had become articulate in an effort to overwhelm the human race. 
Simultaneously, the light from my ring was extinguished, and I saw a new light glimmering from lower space, but a few yards ahead of me. I had arrived at the abyss, which was now redly aglow, and which had evidently swallowed up the unfortunate Romero. Advancing, I peered over the edge of that chasm which no line could fathom, and which was now a pandemonium of flickering flame and hideous uproar. At first I beheld nothing but a seething blur of luminosity, but then shapes, all infinitely distant, began to detach themselves from the confusion, and I swore, was it Juan Romero? But God, I dare not tell you what I saw. Some power from heaven coming to my aid obliterated both sights and sounds in such a crash as may be heard when two universes collide in space. Chaos supervened, and I knew the peace of oblivion. He sees some trippy stuff. <laughs> right. He sees, we think, one down there? Yeah, he sees what he thinks is one uh, transitioned into some kind of luminescent being. Mm-hmm. Uh, very similar to Beyond the Wall of Sleep, uh, Beyond the Wall of Sleep, and um, it kind of blows his mind. Yeah. And then he and there's on. another cleansing blast. Oh of yes, lightning. yeah. And then of course, yeah, lightning crashes, uh, hits the mountain, and a cleansing bl- a blast of lightning once again. Yeah. And uh, he wakes up. Uh, the narrator wakes up in in his bed, uh, and Juan is on the table. All the other miners are around him. Juan is dead. Yeah, and everybody assumes that whatever happened with these guys or whatever happened with Juan is just the work of that lightning that struck the mountain the night before. Yeah, exactly. That was real, but nobody heard any chanting, nobody heard any drums. No. And uh, the lightning, the effect of that is that the cavern below is caved in, and now it's just full of solid rock down there. Yep. It's it's almost as if it didn't get filled in by rubble, but it just it's almost as if the ground just rose up to fill it. Yeah. And uh, there's no getting in there. Nope. And the Hindu ring was gone. It's gone. It's gone. But he doesn't think anybody uh, stole it. I think he says something like, uh, Somehow I doubt if it was stolen by mortal hands, for many strange things were taught me in India. Oh, I forgot about that. That is pretty good. good. That's a good one. Uh, And and he he ends up saying, My opinion of the whole experience varies from time to time. In broad daylight, and at most seasons, I'm apt to think the greater part of it a mere dream. But sometimes, in the autumn... About two in the morning, when the winds and animals howl dismally, there comes from inconceivable depths below a damnable suggestion of rhythmical throbbing, and I feel that the transition of Juan Romero was a terrible one indeed. And that's the that's the end. That's the end of the story. What did you think of that? I like the story. Yeah, I, it's it's not one of his popular stories. In fact, he hated this story and didn't. It did get published until after he uh, died. Oh, Lovecraft himself hated it. Yeah, he didn't like it. He wrote it in uh, September on September sixteenth, nineteen nineteen, but it wasn't published until nineteen forty four, which is you know uh, many years after his death. Um, the supposedly. The only reason that it's it has seen the light of day is because of Robert H. Barlow. He was, you know, talking with Barlow or, or sending uh, letters, and mentioned the story. And Barlow was like, "Give me that story. I want to. I want to typeset it. I want to typeset it." And Lovecraft's like, "All right, fine. You can have it." And he sent it to him. And that's pretty much the only reason why it exists. Wow. Well, thank you, Mr. Barlow. Yeah. Good job. Because I liked it too. Uh, it, it had a good setting. I thought yeah, was neat. Really different from most of Lovecraft's stuff. I mean, there are. Uh, Two other stories that we'll eventually get to, The Curse of Yig and The Mound, which were both set in the uh, the northwest, or um, southwest, excuse me. Uh, 
I don't know, had a good a good suggestion of backstory for the for the yeah. main character. I like that he gets a glimpse of something really horrible and then doesn't really get any explanation for it. No, I, I mean it's suggested maybe the whole thing was a dream, right? Yeah, uh huh, uh huh, yeah. But just in terms, I mean, in terms of articulating a certain type of horror, uh, it reminds me of in life. I mean, it's gonna it's bound to happen to you at some point that you'll see something. It right. won't make any sense to you. It'll right. creep you out or make you feel really. Uh, strange, or, yeah. or maybe like you need to get out of there, uh-huh. and then you won't ever get any explanation for it. You don't know no. why what was going on was going on. No, right, exactly. That reminds me of uh, a time in college when I was hanging out with this guy John, who was a really strange guy. Uh-huh. And I don't know if you've ever had this where you, you don't know somebody very well. I mean, this is I think something that happens when you're young. You don't know somebody very well, but they seem cool, and they're like, "Hey, why don't you come with me and do this thing?" And right. You're like, "All right, yeah, sure." So he, I think, was uh, I think he was a smoking pot or he's getting mm. some pot or he knew a guy or I don't know what it was about. I didn't smoke at the time, but you know, I was a, a young fella and I was just excited to meet different people. Yeah. And so I followed him around. So I went to this person's uh, apartment and it was really weird. Like there were like some older women around <laughs> and like heavy set, like way old, like, you know, in their sixties. And, and there was like this younger punk rock guy sitting on the couch uh, next to an older heavy set woman and they were holding hands watching TV mm-hmm. and it was really creepy I don't know if they were related or right. if it was like his girlfriend whatever it was about that it just really unsettled you. it unsettled me it didn't seem right and they seemed like they were on drugs too like yeah, yeah. maybe they were high or something like that and I never got an explanation <laughs> I, right and yeah. that that you'll always remember that and you'll oh, never yeah. know what was going on oh, yeah, no. you know and sometimes I think that that is really why people begin to believe in ghosts or have or believe in supernatural events because i mean i don't know i remember when i was a little kid uh, i was standing in the bathroom and i got hit in the head with a hairbrush right i looked around and nobody was there uh-huh. i couldn't explain it right now i still can't explain it mm-hmm. i'm guessing that one of my siblings threw it and hit me in the head and uh-huh. just got away because yeah. i was a little kid and i wasn't that astute and observer right but some people will say i can't explain it therefore it must be a ghost it must be uh you know a soul floating around trapped i don't know yeah. I mean, they'll, they'll go to a really crazy <laughs> way really to explain cra- it. crazy explanation because having even a crazy explanation is better than no explanation right, right exactly yeah. well uh anyway that that's part of the reason i like this story it ended in a happy way a little bit because the implication is that Juan was actually from this ancient... I mean, that he just kind of got pushed up from the ground. Right, and then he was reclaimed. And then he was reclaimed. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's kind of cool. Well, I'm, I mean, the only thing... At the end, he says with a, t- a terrible transition, yeah. which, which kind of puts a little bit of a negative spin on it. But, yeah, it, it made me think that maybe there was some kind of cosmic imbalance when he got spit out of the earth, you mm-hmm. know, when Juan... You know, and then it, it, everything was made right again when he was pulled back. Yeah. Right? You know? So... Yeah. And it was maybe terrible to our protagonist because he's not meant to see that kind of thing. Right. And he doesn't understand it. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it reminded me of Beyond the Wall of Sleep, and you made reference to this a bit mm-hmm. ago, uh, because in both stories, we have these very subhuman descriptions of people. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in that story, the guy was a sort of a hillbilly. Here he's a Mexican day laborer. And just really brutal descriptions of, of these people. Yeah, uh-huh. But each of them had something really special within them. That uh-huh. was sort of discovered within the story, right? Something otherworldly and beyond that mere physical kind of, you know, whatever evaluation that right, the protagonist right. has of them. And I, I think that's kind of cool too. I think it's, I think it's much cooler in this story because it does make Juan seems very special. But in 
in the wall of sleep, he really... Yeah, you're right. He kind of... It's a, some other entity that's trapped in a body of a hillbilly. <laughs> right. Like, it's unfortunately know? imprisoned. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's not... It's not um... Yeah. And some of the descriptions in here of Juan are, are pretty offensive, too. But yeah. uh, I wanted to say... Um, in fact, he's described as the ancient Aztecs were this noble race. Mm -hmm. But these Mexicans are not. Yeah, I don't, you know. I don't know why I was doing a little research on the story and looking up the name Juan Romero. There's a lot of people named Juan Romero. But one guy in particular kind of caught my eye, and he was a busboy who was working at the hotel here in Los right. Angeles yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, right. when he was shot. Uh -huh. And he actually was with Kennedy in his dying moments. Uh -huh. And, uh, well, a lot of people offered this guy a lot of money to tell his story. He could have made a, quite a nice bundle of money sure. off of this, but he believed that one man's tragedy shouldn't be another man's profit. And so he never took any of it. Really? No, never. He just didn't accept a dime of it. And this guy, Juan Romero, he lives up in Northern California now. He still uh, he does manual labor. He also helps immigrant families when they come through by letting them stay in his place. Wow. Uh, to me, that is like, one of, like being part of a huge historical event like that and choosing not to cash in on it because he knows that real people got hurt wow. is pretty much one of the more noble things I've heard in my life. Yeah. I, I totally agree. That's really that's really amazing. So take that, Lovecraft. Yeah, Lovecraft. I dig on things in caverns. It's yeah. pretty scary. There was that movie uh, Descent I always thought was pretty creepy. It's really good, and I'll say that the claustrophobia to me was even scarier than any of the cave creatures or anything. Oh, yeah, yeah. When the girl gets uh, kind of... She's trying to go through the little small crevice, and oh, she, gets, horrible. she gets stuck in there. And that's the worst, that, that you could, can't move your head or your arms or yeah. your legs, just being pinned like that. Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty disturbing. And well, because, know, I mean, you could... You know, if you're stuck there, it would take you a long time to die, I think, is what, mm -hmm. what makes it more horrific than just even suffocating or drowning. Because, yeah. you know, that only takes, you know, a few moments and then you pass out and then you, then you die. But that, you, you can starve to death. Right. Or some critter can come up and start eating your toes and you can't do Ugh. anything about it. And and it's just pitch black down there. It's unexplored to this day. I mean, there's tons oh, sure. of caverns underneath the planet we have no idea sure. what's down there no and and probably dinosaurs living dinosaurs probably dinosaurs probably some race of giant people yeah i'm thinking I mean, so you know. but <laughs> well you know in dagon we saw lovecraft take on the ocean for the first time right oh yeah yeah and this is uh, he's kind of going underground now. yeah he's going underground he's been in space with polaris he's kind of setting up all of his little sets that he likes to play in and uh, one of these the, the subterranean stuff is really one of my favorites right uh, caverns yeah. just scare the out of me Pretty good, pretty good. You know, there's um another thing. You made reference about how Lovecraft will throw out stuff and then just not explain it. Uh -huh. uh, oh, yeah, he does specifically that. Specifically, the Aztec god, uh, Huitzilopochtli. That's pretty good. Or Huitzilopochtli, which... I, I, I have Huitzilopochtli. No, that's wrong. That's not right. Where'd you hear that? Where'd you, where'd you get that from? I just I looked at the phonetic spelling of the word, and then I looked at all the sounds... Of yeah. those phonemes, and then I pieced well, it together. Well, I went to Aztec mythology websites that specialized in oh. this, and that's where I got and, But there was many of them, and then they had different pronunciations. It said either Huetzalopochtli or Huitzalopochtli. Huitzalopochtli. Um, okay. They have big names, these gods. But anyway, this guy was a hummingbird mm -hmm. of the south on the left, or the left-handed hummingbird. But basically, he was a god of war and a sun god. Which mm -hmm. kind of ties into how Lovecraft mentioned that uh, Juan would put his hands up, you know, and he would be like praying to the sun and doing all that stuff. And... Do you, hold on, I, are you done talking? Because I have an award for you for getting that pronunciation right. 
Huitzilopochtli or whatever the heck it is. That's yeah. he's in that sort of pantheon with Quetzalcoatl. And, yep, 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 and... yep. Same guy. Aztec, Aztec mythology, man. In that the myth of this guy, one thing that really cracked me up, and uh, and you clearly know more about this than me, but when he was in the uh, in the womb, mm-hmm. Huitzilopochtli uh, found out that there was some conspiracy to kill his mother. Or I take him out. I don't know anything about this. And and so he learned of that conspiracy, broke out early, Athena like, and uh, and I think killed like four hundred of his siblings or something like that. Wait, he killed his siblings? Yeah, killed all of them. Uh, Why? I I don't. He was angry about this conspiracy. But what did they? Were they in on it? Well, they must have been if he killed them. Well, look, mythology doesn't make a lot of sense. No, it doesn't necessarily. Maybe. He just wanted to be the only sibling. There's a lot of blood involved with this guy, and I yeah. think a lot of sacrifices and human sacrifices were made in, in this this unpronounceable name, right? <laughs> Which Love got through out there and didn't bother. Well, I know, no, I know he uh, he did a lot of reading. He um, one of the things I know that he read uh, a descent into the Maelstrom and also mm. Conquest of Mexico by Prescott, and he mentions that in some of his letters. So he might actually have, you know. Some good knowledge of of this god, and I'm sure and he does. It to, or, you know, we'll I thought it was cool it. that he threw it out. That well, you know, it was one of those things where a footnote would have been nice by the author because right. he throws it out and he says, "And once I read what that was about, I got really scared." And it takes me out of the story because I'm like, "What? I have to go over to my library now and look." Yeah, and read this thing. Yeah, that's no, just a kinda, pet peeve. Kind of some it's a pain in the. Well, you know, um, on a on a quick side note about this, there was I found a stick figure uh, comic strip of. This story. Oh, cool! I, you know, I was just about to say I, I couldn't find a movie adaptation. No, or, there isn't. Uh, there isn't even. But there song. is a stick figure, uh, car- a stick figure cartoon. It's it's at uh, lostcarcosa.net forward slash comic, and I'll put that in the show notes. Cool. Uh, and it's really cool. It's like it's the whole story. It's about five pages, and he does a few um, other more obscure Lovecraft stories. So I think you know, go check it out. It's neat. Cool, man. Moving on from Juan Romero, there are two other stories that were written in 1919 that we're not really going to go into any detail on. Okay. But I wanted to bring them up briefly because I read them and I think you read them too. Yeah, you know. Uh, Memory. Mm-hmm. Memory is really short. It's only about a page and it's a quick story. A genie comes in from outer space, flies <laughs> into this valley where there's this demon hanging out and he, the genie says to the demon, hey, look at all these ruins and these monkeys and things going on. You know, what, what ancient civilization made these ruins? And then the, the uh, demon says, oh, it was the this ancient race that once existed on the planet but no longer exists. The race was called man. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. I know. It's, it's crazy. Wow. But, uh, so, you know, it's a page. It's not, not, it wasn't worth, I I wanted to mention it because it it was written in this page. But also, he wrote this, (laughs) this, this I'm totally into. I mean, it's terribly written and not very interesting. But, but what it is, it's called Old Bugs. Oh, gosh, I bet that's about ancient race of insect manner. You would think it is, but it's actually about a bum, a derelict. Called Bugs? Called Old Bugs. Oh, okay. And so Old Bugs, uh... What, this wasn't published until uh, after his death, like not until 59 in a bunch of, you know, random Lovecraft pieces. But there's a reason why. Well, one, because it's it's terrible. Uh-huh. But the whole point of the reason why he wrote this story was because um, Alfred Galpin suggested to Lovecraft that he wanted to try alcohol before Prohibition was going to kick in. So Lovecraft, he wanted to try it. That's hilarious. He wanted to give alcohol a try before Prohibition. So alcohol, or, so Lovecraft 
you know, being a teetotaler, a mm. crazy teetotaler, wrote a, a ca- this as a cautionary tale for him. <laughs> and the, like the reveal oh, at the okay. end of it is that that old Bugs is actually Alfred Galpin, you know, and he becomes a, a derelict, and a, you know, he's gotcha. a slave to the alcohol and stuff like that. Uh. It's it, oh yeah, and then at the end of it, there's like a little note. Um, it says at the bottom of the manuscript, Lovecraft had written, "Now will you be good?" Oh, he's trying to help him out. He's trying yeah. to keep him from drinking. Not only did Lovecraft spawn the genres of science fiction and horror, he actually did the first PSA. He did the first after-school special. The first after-school special, right there. That there actually is. reminds me of a great Oscar Brown Jr. song called "Somebody Buy Me a Drink." You should probably listen to that instead of reading the story. <laughs> <laughs> Comments mm-hmm. about the podcast. Oh, we have some comments. We, we? Have, well, yeah, we have plenty of comments. We're having wonderful uh, feedback from lots of different people. That's true, and I like it. Yeah, I thank, support it, and I you, really, really appreciate it. Uh, I, I, but I hate to focus on one guy, but he writes really good comments, and they're pretty insightful. This is again JB Lee. Ah, let's hear what he had to say. Another home run this week. Of course, it would be nice if Lovecraft would at least try to hold up his end of the show. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> and he will in time. He will. He will. No, I like that. But beyond That's the good. wall of sleep's brainwave machine, goofy and mood-shattering as it is, begins the fusion of the nascent science fiction genre with a well-established supernatural story. And that gives the tale quite an importance in retrospect. The genesis of gothic science fiction, Lovecraft's brand of weird science, will go on from here to drag down demons from the stars, summon gods from other dimensions, and call up phantoms from eons past. And if it begins with a tinfoil hat precariously balanced on a sloped head of a renegade rube, well, even Einstein had a start somewhere. It's true. So, JB, yeah, very uh, good point. Yeah, Something really... that we kind of skipped over is that uh, Lovecraft is one of the first guys to really take supernatural and science and meld them together. Yeah. And that's and this is the first time that he does this in his writings, and that's really cool. It's really cool because it's one of the I, – I remember having that realization, and I don't know what story it was. My first uh, exposure to Lovecraft were pretty strictly horror stories where they mm-hmm. had uh, wizardry involved. It was right. you know, like Charles Dexter Ward. That was, was yeah, Charles Dexter Ward. Uh, necromancy involved. And, but, uh, necromancy. It, I think it's pronounced necromancy. Is it wacky? <laughs> uh, I uh, <laughs> necromancy. Is that what you I don't know what I was saying. <laughs> I only read it. There's no. It, there's never a point in my life where I have to say that. And you know what I mean. It just oh, doesn't course. come up at work. Of course, yeah. Um, the first time I read a story and went, "Wait a minute, he's saying these old gods are from outer space." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really a strange kind of dis. What's the word for it when you have cognitive dissonance? It, it, I it, uh-huh. those two genres to me didn't seem like they should. Fit, you know no but they totally do well uh i have nothing more for this uh episode chat i don't either uh but i liked it and uh, i liked it i want to thank uh, pete again thank you pete, yeah for, thanks pete. for stepping up and giving us a little read lovely what uh, are we doing next week next week is the white ship Ooh, i don't know that story i don't know it either what I'm do gonna... you uh, speculate it's about i'm thinking that the white ship is about a fry cook named charles Wow. Yeah. I am so excited to find out about this guy now. I'm Chad Fife. I'm Chris Lackey. This has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. See you all later. HPPodcraft.com. Ah!